Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Our scripture for today's sermon comes from Philippians 1, it's verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I I still have. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, family. We doing okay? It's good to see you guys today. If you are a guest with us this morning, I'm really glad that you're here. It's a privilege to, um, to have a morning of worship with you. If you're here today also and you've been brought with a friend and you're not yet a follower of Jesus or not sure what you believe, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. It's a privilege to open God's word with you. And I want you to know this is a safe place to bring your questions. You don't got to be put together or sort of know what you believe. You can belong here before you put all that together, and um, we'd, we'd love to talk with you about doubts and skepticism and, and frustrations. We, we probably have some of those too, but we're, we're learning to trust Jesus, and we'd love to talk with you about any of that. And so, um, hey, listen, if you've got a Bible, open up to uh, this passage that was just read, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. If you don't have a Bible, the, the words will be on the screen throughout our time, so you can follow along there. Uh, but I'm really excited about what we have in front of us today in this passage of Scripture, so um, I'll, I'll get right to it. If you please pray for me. I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would shape us. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Lord Jesus, thank you for that prayer. Thank you for the Lord's prayer that you taught us to pray, and thank you that you let us to say with you that your Father is is our Father. That's amazing today. And we ask, hallowed be thy name, that your name would be made heavy on us today. I'm asking for the kind of heaviness here that not would be a weight and a burden to us, but God, when you come and you make your name holy to us, it's actually liberating to us. It sets us free. It lightens us. You lift our burdens, God. And so our Father in heaven, would this next 30 minutes be about your name being made holy here? Hallowed be thy name. We ask that you'd shape us as followers of Jesus. We ask that you would chase us down with your love. My heart was burdened today, God, just to name here as we open our time. For those that are present here with either weak faith or dwindling love for Jesus. And I pray today that they would know you're pursuing love. That you're not so much asking them just to figure out how to rise up to you but your gospel declares that you come and you meet us. And so God, I do pray for anyone with weak, and weak faith and dwindling love for Jesus that they would know you're pursuing love. 
Would you help us now as we open your word and we offer this prayer together as God's people and we say, amen. Amen. Uh, well, I'm in a really fun season with my oldest daughter, uh, Liv. She's, she's in middle school, uh, which brings all the joys of middle school, just right? Like, that's just an amazing thing. Um, but also what's available to her are all the school sports. And so she's, like, loving that. She's sort of doing all of them and finding herself in several overlapping seasons. I find myself waking up earlier than I want to to get her off to these early morning practices. And so driving in the dark, and I'm sort of ma- uh, uh, wanting to have, like, these amazing, you know, mornings with having just one-on-one conversation with her, she's just sort of like, I'm just trying to get to practice, Dad. Can you please shut up, you know? But she's about to transition into soccer season. And all of these sort of morning commutes have just brought back to mind all these old memories of me doing the same thing when I was growing up. I know that when you must look at me, you must think athlete immediately, right? Um, (laughs) Probably not, but I was, believe it or not. Um, But I remember these these preseason practices, you know? That's the, the memory that has sought back to mind as I thought about our time this morning. Those mornings when the coach would tell us, hey, don't worry about your cleats. They'll, they'll be of no use to you. You just need your running shoes. We're just gonna be on the track. And no one, no one really liked those practices. The idea was that he was gonna run us until we were about to break. He was gonna run us until we did break. He was gonna keep an eye on everything so no one had to report something back to their parents of, of unhealth, you know. He would call us together and give us some sort of speech, but it wasn't like a speech to like say, hey, practice is now over. It was just sort of give you a breather because you're back on the line. And now I see like all these years later, I look back and I have so much more of a frame of reference for what he was trying to accomplish in those running practices, those conditioning practices. It wasn't, it wasn't just about sort of getting the team in shape and having some conditioning to start the season. He was trying to create some controlled adversity for us. He was trying to see who's gonna keep showing up when it's not fun. He was trying to assess, how are these guys going to treat each other when, when it gets hard? Like, how are these guys going to treat each other when certain guys on the team can't make it around the track under the time I've set for them and everyone else gets to run a punishment lap while those guys rest? How will they treat one another? When things aren't going their way, when it's not fun, when someone wants to quit, when someone does quit, he wanted to know about our unity. He wanted to know about what kind of group he had in front of him. Would these guys be willing to work for the guy next to them? Would these guys be willing to go the extra length for the guy next to them, even at great cost to them? He wanted to know who would keep showing up and would we do it together. So I talk about unity this morning that way. And and everyone in the room probably has a memory like that or some other team that you were on or or a team that you were working with. And everyone can sort of talk about the power of unity, the power of a unified group after a common cause. Everyone could talk about that. The world loves unity. This isn't explicitly a Christian thing. Everyone recognizes the power of unity, but here's what I do want to point to us with the scriptures today and and with God, that he has determined that for his church, unity, the thing that everyone is sort of into, that there's a particular power when the church of Jesus Christ stands together, keeps showing up together. There's a testimony to the world there. There's a testimony to the world. You have followers of Jesus set within a local church like ours, set within a city, sort of like those old spring preseason practices, how it is that we treat one another really matters. Just like those spring practices, when things get hard, when caring for another person comes at great cost to you, do you keep showing up? When life isn't particularly fun, when a brother or sister sadly wants to quit, 
or when a brother or sister does quit. How we stand together, how it is that we work for the good of the person next to us, how we stay in it together, how we keep showing up. There's something powerful there, not just for those who are on the inside that experience that unity. What's happening in scriptures that we're going to look at today is there's a sign to those also on the outside of what's happening with God and his people. So today I want us to think about our unity together. So here's, here's where we sort of are in the flow of things. Last week, if you are with us, you know that we wrapped up a few weeks walking through our mission as a church, things that we believe God has called us to. And then as John gave announcements, you know that this coming weekend we have Feminine Virtue coming up, this conference that's going to kick off then into Sunday, a three-week preaching series on the same. So coming out of our mission into a really important season of discipleship, not just for the women of our church, but honestly for all of us, a really important season of discipleship, it felt like today, sort of sandwiched in the middle of all of that, there was this beautiful opportunity to think about our unity. On the front end of this discipleship, where, where are we going to stand together? How are we going to stand together? And so cards on the table, I stand with the rest of our elders to say that we're in a really fun season as a church. This is a really special season in our church. And so as I talk about unity, I don't imagine this as like a corrective conversation. That's not my approach today. I, I, don't, I don't sort of have this as like a, a warning to throw up there. There's a threat coming down, although we would always do well to pay attention to our unity. I mean, we're in a season as a church where people are meeting Jesus, 25 baptisms this past year. Our kids' ministry is exploding. Dylan, as he does the math on community groups, 820 of you connected to groups, more groups than we've ever had as a church. There's really beautiful things coming across our church. And so as I pitched the idea of community this morning, sorry, unity this morning, my concern for us or my hope for us is that we would see that what God has called us to, to stand as a unified people, is actually the fuel for both the mission that we've just been talking about and the formation that we want to get after together. And this is why I wanted to turn us to what Paul says to the church in Philippi. I don't know how much you know about this letter, but the letter to the church at Philippi is the only New Testament letter that's not framed up by the apostle as a corrective. He doesn't have a negative concern to this church. He's not trying to fix an issue that they're dealing with. If anything, the apostle, as it were, is sort of pouring gas on the fire. He's cheering them on as a spiritual father. Hey, keep going in the faith. It's an exhortation and encouragement the whole way through. The first part of chapter one opens with Paul giving gratitude for the church. He gives prayers for the church. He gives this personal report as to how he's doing as a prisoner in Rome for having preached the gospel against the wishes of Caesar and writing to them from a prison cell. He tells them all about that. But then in verse 27, where I want us to focus our attention today, he turns and he gives his first instruction to this church. And here's where I want us to focus our thoughts this morning because he also speaks to us. And so in verse 27, he gives this charge. He says this, only, there's a focus to his words here. Only, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A massive thing to say. You can hear the charge in what he offers, a banner statement, something as Christians that's a foundational call to us to build our life on. Maybe you read this sort of like I long did, where you read what Paul says here, only let your, that you're there, you read that maybe in a personal way. And you just assume sort of just by default that Paul is speaking to you strictly at a personal level. 
But what I want you to see and what Paul says here is that this verse does apply to you personally. It does apply to you individually, but only so much as you're participating in the whole. This is a plural you. Paul is speaking to the church. If this were Oklahoma speak, this would be Paul saying y'all, right? He's addressing the collective. And there's something really profound, really special what Paul is driving at in this charge, that phrase that's five words in English, let your manner of life is only a single word in the original Greek. And it's better translated as live as citizens. Live as citizens. So what Paul is saying to this church, he says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus. I want you to live out your citizenship in a way that would magnify the worth of this gospel. And so he's wanting them to understand something about the nature of their faith in Jesus that has something to do with how they understand their proud citizenship, in their case, as Romans. These, these actually go together. He's saying, I don't want you, Philippians, to primarily think of yourselves as Romans who happen to live in Philippi, and oh, by the way, you're also Christians. He's saying, I don't want you to think of yourselves that way, but instead I want you to understand yourselves as blood-bought disciples of the Lord Jesus, whose primary citizenship is in heaven, that's what's primary about you. That's what's foundational and fundamental about you. And then secondarily, your Romans, who just so happened for a little while longer, based on the providence of God, live in Philippi. He's wanting to flip the way they understand their citizenship. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, he makes it plain, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we await our Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the way this then translates to us He's saying, I don't want you to primarily think of yourselves as Americans living in Oklahoma who, oh yeah, by the way, just so happen to be Christians. That's not how I want you to understand yourselves. You should primarily see yourself as blood-bought disciples of the Lord Jesus. That's foundational, fundamental, if you've come to him by faith. And then secondarily, you're Americans who just so happen to, for a little while longer, based on God's providence, live in Oklahoma City. And I want you to notice that the way that he reframes this isn't to sort of take away pride in your homeland. This isn't an anti-Roman message any more than it would be an anti-American message. In fact, what he's trying to do for the Philippians is attach them to their city all the more so in a healthy way. By reframing citizenship, here's what Paul is saying. Don't you realize that the very gospel of God's grace that has reached you the pursuing love of God that's come to you and it's changed you, don't you realize that's a message for your whole city? That's not just for you. And the way that you magnify that, the way that you show the worth of what God has done isn't by thinking yourself as an Oklahoman who happens to be a Christian, but the way that you magnify this gospel is by understanding yourself as a Christian who by God's grace and by God's purpose are tethered to Jesus and you just so happen to live in Oklahoma City for the blessing and the benefit of the city. Not to consume from the city, but what can you bring in terms of the gospel to the city? You see, what Paul's trying to drive at is that the gospel sets us free and actually empowers us. Christians of all people have the potential to be the best of all citizens because we're not looking for what we can get from the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we can bring the life of God to the world through the Son and his gospel. And so the question becomes, okay, Paul, that banner statement, that charge, how do we do that? How do we live as citizens worthy of the gospel? So here's where I want to pitch a question to you just for a moment. As you're hearing that, 
What do you imagine Paul says next? Live as a worthy citizen of the gospel. What's the first dot he's going to connect there? If your mind is anything like mine, maybe you think that what he's about to say has something to do with our morality and our ethics. That we better be of a people of a certain kind. If we're going to live as worthy citizens of the gospel, we've got to get our religious morals in order. Or maybe he's going to say something here then about your Bible reading plan or something like that that you've already failed at in February. You know, me too. Maybe he's going to say something then about the regularity of your prayer life. What Paul says next, and I'm familiar with this passage, I love it. That's why I drove back to it this week. But every time I read what he connects here as the first dot on living in a manner worthy of the gospel, isn't what I think he would say. Notice what he says in 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, here's the dot he connects. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. There's unity. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, I want you to live in a way that magnifies the gospel of Jesus. The first dot he connects is to how to do that. The first evidence is not our morality and ethics, although the Bible speaks to those things. It's not so much your devotional consistency, although the Bible speaks to a manner of reading scripture and a prayer life. But the first evidence of living in a way that magnifies what Jesus has done is church unity. He says, I want to hear that you're standing side by side, one mind, one heart, one spirit. And the reason he says this is because isn't it true, just think about your own life, is it's entirely possible for you to be the kind of Christian who would have theological boxes checked, believing the right things. It's entirely possible that for you to have sort of your religious morals and order and a manner of life in a certain way. It's entirely possible for you to have some devotional consistency about your life, but that you've also so compartmentalized those things that have order about them that you've left off other parts of your heart that leave you to be a petty, slanderous, judgmental, gossiping Christian. There's people that can feel so proud of a manner of order about their life, but they've so then turned that into judgment of even other Christians. And what Paul's trying to drive at by saying the way that we magnify the gospel is through unity is to say, what kind of witness to the world would that be? What kind of witness to the world would that be? What, is it, what would it say about the power of Jesus in his gospel if we're able to say, he changes what we believe, he changes our morals, but he has no power over our peace with one another? This is why he's driving at this. And so you just want to think about even our current cultural moment of all cancel and no grace. Where we stand as the church in this moment, we have an opportunity to stand in wild contrast to the world. If you want to talk about cancel culture for just a moment, isn't it true that the church is a collective of people who we should have been canceled already? Most namely by God because of our sin against him. And yet, because of his grace, the only thing that's been canceled by those who look to Jesus are our sins. And that, not because we pulled it together, but because of the death of God's own son. We should have been long ago canceled. And yet, it was grace that got us into this thing. It was practicing forgiveness that got us into this thing. It was God extending unity with us that got us into this thing. Surely then now, that's the grace Paul's contending that we need to learn to offer to one another if we're gonna continue in this thing. 
It's not just what gets us in and what keeps us. And so before I make a turn, I just want to offer like, Paul says unity is a really serious issue. We could do a New Testament survey here. It's one of the big three in the New Testament. Is there anybody here that you need to reconcile with? Is there anybody here that you feel, I'll sit on the other side of the room with that person? Maybe we could talk and help that conversation along, but is there reconciliation in this room that's necessary? But I wanna keep reading. We've got two more verses And Paul's going to show us two reasons why this fight for unity, why why us paying attention to it is so critical. And the first reason he gives us is in verse 28, and I'll go ahead and give you the reason, and we'll dive after it. He says, unity is a missional strategy. He's going to say that unity is a missional strategy. Pick up with me in verse 28. He's continuing his thought here about standing side by side, striving with one mind and one spirit, he says, and I don't want you to be frightened, notice, in anything by your opponents. Don't be scared of anything. Paul tells this church in the middle of an anti-Christian Roman government, I don't want you to be scared. Standing together, standing unified, I don't want you to be scared of anything. This is amazing. He says, don't fear anything. Don't fear an oppressive, persecuting government in their case. Don't fear your neighbors that might sell you out to that persecuting government. Paul writes this letter to them from prison under Roman watch. And he says, I don't want you to be afraid of anything. How can Paul say this? Paul says this to the church. He offers this kind of courage because he really believes in his bones that my citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. The best of my comforts and the best of my pleasures aren't here. They're in Christ. My citizenship is in heaven, and he really believes that Rome can't do anything to finally harm him. If you're familiar with Philippians 1 as a whole, you might remember back up in 21, he has this famous verse. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die, that's gain. What Paul's going to say is, if Rome keeps me alive then my life life belongs to Jesus. We've already settled that. My life belongs to Jesus. And if Rome decides to kill me, well, then my death is gained because at least I get to go be with Jesus. Paul was a miserable prisoner for Rome. Nightmare prisoner. They couldn't do anything to get after him. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, I don't want you to hear me as a superhero Christian with all this magical courage. This courage is ours. This this kind of courage actually belongs to a unified church as the people of God. Because why? God is in control. He really does get the last word. We together don't have to be afraid of anything. How relevant for us is this in our time? It's true that we're not persecuted like the Philippian church was. But there's a lot of hand-wringing in our current moment among Christians, a lot of hand-wringing about politics and progressive sexual ethics and some who look at the next generation and fear that we're on the losing side of these sorts of things, that we're losing our country. But here's what Paul would say. Don't be afraid of anything. I don't want you to be afraid of anything. Isn't it true that God has historically and still is currently sovereignly advancing his gospel 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus under ideologies that are far worse than what we're dealing with. The gospel is exploding in the, most, in the places most hostile to it in the world. And this doesn't mean by exchanging our fear, it doesn't mean that we cease to care about issues, that we lose our burden. But what, but what Paul is saying is what we would do better to do instead of hand-wringing is exchange that fear for a better fight of standing unified with God's people and getting after our common discipleship together. Let's care, let's be involved, but let's not put our hope there. Let's put our hope in standing unified in the gospel and saying God will take care of his church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. The Lord Jesus said that. The Lord Jesus said that. And notice why he says this at the end of verse 28. This is wild to me. In verse 28, Paul says this. This, he's talking about their unity. This will be a clear sign to them, the watching world. This will be a clear sign to them of their destruction. Your unity is a sign of their destruction, but also of your salvation. And that is the work of God. Paul all of a sudden just raised the waterline on how important unity is here. He says, it's a sign to the watching world of coming judgment. But also, at the same time, a sign and a reminder to us that we res- he's really saved us. Look at what he's done to bring a ragtag group together like us. And so what does he mean by this? That it's a sign of destruction. The reason that he calls the unity of a local church a sign to the world of its coming destruction is because we are a people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of skin colors, standing together under a crucified and risen Lord. And isn't it true that the the Son of God crucified, Jesus crucified is a sign to the world of either judgment or salvation based on what you do with him. Based on what you do with him. The son of God crucified at the hands of sinful men is a sign that what God has brought into the world of either judgment or salvation. At the cross of Jesus, you either see judgment for your sins laid on him and you are saved or you see foolishness and you reject him. And the scriptures say, God has raised a man from the dead by whom he will judge the world. Now listen, the world clearly doesn't agree with us on this. They clearly don't see what Paul is saying the same way. But what Paul is saying is that when a church stands unified together, when a church holds together under the lordship of Jesus, there is actually happening week by week, year by year, Sunday by Sunday, a patient witness to the city that on the one hand, regardless of what you think of Jesus, regardless of how you feel about Jesus, his people are still gathering every Lord's Day. And on the one hand, there is a sign of grace. There is a sign to say, come on, be saved because this crucified and risen Lord stands for you. And on the other hand, there is a warning of coming judgment because a unified church is a sign of the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is king over both. He stands with us. He stands for us. And we stand together with him. And so Paul's saying, if you want to magnify the worth of the gospel, if you want to magnify this, who would have thought that such a seemingly small thing as unity would be a missional strategy? We've got one more verse in verse 29, and it gives us the second reason for unity. Unity 
empowers us to suffer well. Unity empowers us to suffer well. Pick up in 29 with me. He says, for it has been granted to you. And the word granted there is graced, the essence of the word. So it's been graced to you. It's the work of God for you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. We love that. But it's been graced to you that you would also suffer for his sake. What I love about this passage is that Paul keeps saying surprising things to us. He says it one more time. There are two things that God has given to you, Christian, two graces at least that you've received, faith and suffering. The first we love, the second not so much. And here's what Paul is saying. Saving faith in Jesus and suffering for the sake of Jesus are to be received both as graces, primarily because we can't create or faithfully endure in either of them apart from the work of God. You can't create or endure in either of them apart from what God is doing in you. So just take your faith for a moment. You didn't make your faith. You didn't muster up your faith. You didn't create your faith. You didn't find God. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that he found you. He came after you. He's making you. And the reason that any of us can endure in faith is because God endures with us and he sustains our faith. Faith is a grace. But it's also true about suffering as a Christian. No one chooses suffering for themselves. You didn't choose your faith for yourself. You didn't choose suffering for yourself. But the reason that throughout the New Testament, suffering is mentioned as a grace is at the very least it means that someone has seen enough Jesus in you to ridicule you for it. At the very least. So 1 Peter 4, verse 16 I mentioned a couple of these verses last week, but here's another one. It says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't let him be ashamed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, don't let him be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him glorify God. What Paul is saying is that suffering as a Christian is not a sign of not God's neglect. You've got to hear that. When you suffer as a Christian, it's not as though God is neglecting you. Sometimes we think it is. But rather, it's a proof that grace is so much at work in your life that someone has at least identified you with Jesus. And so suffering isn't a a reason to walk away from God. It's no reason to walk away from God. It's all the more reason to stay because it joins you to Jesus. Later in in this book, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's going to say this. I want to know Christ. And we all typically stop there. I want to know Christ and, he says, fellowship with him in his sufferings. Because I want to know Jesus at the heights and I want to know Jesus at the depths. Why is Paul saying this? He's saying, because I want to learn to trust and be formed just like the Lord Jesus. Please hear this, that God knows the way out the other side. God knows the way out the other side. And here's what I know in my short time on this earth. No one gets to walk out the other side without having experienced a little bit of suffering. You don't get to choose the suffering that comes into your life because you would choose not to have it. But as Christians and by God's grace, we do get to choose how we'll suffer. We do get to choose how. Isn't it true, right, that there's, there's, it's one thing to confess Jesus when the sun is shining. It's one thing to confess Jesus when like everything is right in the world. Good for you. Everything's going well for you. But it's another thing entirely to make that same confession about Jesus on the dark day when you're breaking. 
I still believe God is good. And I have no idea where to find him, but he won't leave me. That's a, that's a different kind. That, that kind of confession is only the work of God's grace. That is a grace to you. And that kind of confession, doesn't it make you a peculiar witness that magnifies the gospel? Who is he that not even his people would abandon him on the dark day? Who is he? And so where does the power to suffer well come from? Paul is saying really clearly, the power to suffer well comes from the strength of a unified church with brothers and sisters to help you keep going when your tank is empty. That's where it comes from. Brothers and sisters, just at the point when you start to think that you're crazy and you have no faith left, brothers and sisters rally around you and they remind you, you're not crazy. Or you are crazy and we're all crazy, but it's the good kind of crazy. And they help you find your faith again. Just at the point when you feel like you've got no prayers left to pray, the strength of the church prays on your behalf until you can find your prayers again. Just at the point when you start to think, I'm not sure if he's worth it, and you want to walk away, the church rallies around you and they help you say with the Apostle Peter, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of life. The power of a unified church empowers us to live a life worthy of the gospel because it's a place where we can throw down anchors for the day when we're going to need them. You don't have to make decisions on the dark day because you've already made decisions on the bright day and you're tethered there to the people. And so as we close today, we're also closing out. We've closed out the first month of 2024. And as I was kind of preparing this and kind of thinking about how it might call us together, I don't know what 2024 is going to give us. I don't know what this year is going to look like, but here's what I do know, that what we've looked at today, God has given us a calling to live, worthy as, worthy, live as worthy citizens of the gospel. And that we can do that by standing together and for one another. And if you're new here to Frontline, I just want you to hear me say about what we believe as a church that this isn't so much a place to attend, although we want you to keep running with us. We really do believe that over time, this is a place to belong, a community to belong to. That's what church is. And so the call this morning for us is to say, hey, listen, as we jump into this really important season of formation, let's keep short accounts together. Let's keep short accounts. If, if, if there needs to be conversations in the room, hey, let's have them. Let's keep short accounts together. Unity matters. Can we just commit that on the front end is some really important formation work that we're not gonna disappear on each other? That when, like, when God presses in on us, when there's some life change that he's pulling out of us, when, when things get hard, can we just agree? we're not gonna disappear on each other? On the front end of feminine virtue, men in the room, here's something I'd wanna call you to. Let's pray like crazy for our sisters. This coming week, into the weekend, starting next weekend with the preaching series, let's pray like crazy for our sisters. If you were here last year, we walked through masculine virtue, and the women of our church prayed mightily for us. Hey, let's be good brothers and do the same. Sisters in the room, hey, pray for one another. As I've been praying for it, like that passage from Isaiah that talks about being oaks of righteousness has come to mind. I want to see feminine oaks of righteousness, sturdy women who know who they are. They know what Jesus has done. They know the righteousness he's worked for them, and they stand in wisdom and encouraged to offer something to the world. 
Let's pray for one another. And the vision of the local church that's been given to us by Paul today, he gave this to us for our courage. He says, I don't want you to be afraid of anything. I don't want to be afraid of anything. It's been given to us for our resilience. The Father really does know the way out the other side. It's been given to us for our comfort. Jesus has said, and we believe it, not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. Let's pray. Father, I want to say, um, just with my brothers and sisters here today, thank you for what you've done in Jesus that wouldn't just bring us peace with you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus that would give us peace together. Thank you that you've given us a family. God, I pray that you would keep us from being the kind of people who would want to isolate and try to figure things out on our own. God, would you help us to see the gift of a local church that we can bring our questions, we can bring our doubts, we can bring the mess inside of us and we can find together a family who will point us back to God. Thank you, Jesus, for your pursuing love. We wanna make ourselves open for you to keep chasing us. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name and we said together, amen.